So as Nick said earlier today, we are beginning a new series, as you can tell. We just read from Galatians 1 on the book of Galatians. And uh, the, the book of Galatians is actually a letter, right? The Apostle Paul, as many of you know, traveled around preaching, you know, uh, the message of Jesus. And he, he, set up ch- he set up churches in the places where he went. You can actually read uh, about Paul setting up these churches in Galatia that he's writing to in Acts 13 and 14. So he's writing to these churches in Galatia. It's now modern-day Turkey. This is actually the oldest letter that we have of Paul. It's the oldest document we have in the entire New Testament. And why it's important is that it's one of the clearest explanations of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That means Paul gives a very clear explanation of the significance of Jesus' death and resurrection and why that's actually good news for us. So in the very first Paul, sorry, in the very first verse, Paul describes himself as an apostle. An apostle just simply someone who is a messenger, but not just any messenger. It's a messenger who comes with the authority of Jesus himself. Kind of like maybe an ambassador who represents the foreign nation and another nation. In the New Testament, of course, the apostles were the original 12 disciples that sat at the feet of Jesus and learned from him, saw his miracles, witnessed his death. They, they encountered the, the resurrected Jesus, and then, and then Jesus commissioned these 12 disciples to go on and, and preach this message of Jesus in Jerusalem and then all over the place. Paul, of course, wasn't one of those original 12 disciples, though, was he? But Paul had this miraculous encounter with the resurrected Jesus on the Damascus Road. And there God transformed him from this persecutor of the church to probably its greatest witness. And that experience gave him the status and authority of an apostle of Jesus Christ. So that's where he starts. But you really can't understand this entire letter. We're spending 10 weeks on this letter. You can't understand this letter unless you know a little bit about the background of the letter. You see, when Christianity began, just after the resurrection and then ascension of Jesus, it was this kind of Jesus movement around Jerusalem, mostly of Jewish people, Jewish Christians. And of course, the Jewish Christians, they had already been obeying the law of Moses their whole life. They had already been circumcised circumcision, right? If you remember back in our our Genesis series, circumcision was this initiation, right, that brought you into the people of God. It brought you into Israel. It marked you off as, I'm one of God's people, okay? So all these Christians, they were Jewish Christians, right? So they already obeyed the law of Moses. They kept the Sabbath and all these things, and they were already circumcised, so they didn't have to worry about all the implications of what that meant. So as the church spreads to places like Galatia. And in Galatia, what you find is these churches, they're all Gentiles. That means they're all non-Jewish people, okay? They're like most of us probably here tonight. And the issue with these Gentiles is that none of them have been obeying the law of Moses. Why would they be doing that? That would be like asking someone in England, why aren't you obeying the laws in, uh, in China? Of course you're not. You wouldn't do that. Makes no sense. They weren't circumcised. 
And what happens is, some of the people from Jerusalem, they come down to Galatia, where Paul has planted this church. And Paul says they begin stirring up confusion. Paul actually calls them troublemakers or agitators in chapter 5, verse 12. You see, these troublemakers believed that Gentiles, non-Jews, needed to obey the law of Moses. And specifically, they needed to be circumcised in order to become Christians. That's what they're teaching them. They probably used verses like Genesis 17, 14 as proof. Let me read it to you. They said, hey guys, this is Bible. Let me show you. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised, uh, who has not been circumcised in the flesh, he will be cut off from his people. He has broken the covenant. So these people came into the Galatian churches and they said, listen, this Paul guy, he preached to, the, the gospel he preached to you, it was a, it wasn't a whole gospel. Because he told, he didn't tell you that you still need to obey this law of Moses. And he didn't tell you you needed to be a, 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 a circumcised in order to become a Christian. And they didn't even stop there. They said, I don't even know if this guy's an actual apostle. Seems a bit illegitimate to me. So Paul is writing this letter for a few reasons. One of which is to say, hey, I'm a legitimate apostle. Verse, verse, right? An apostle, not from men, but from God. But more importantly, Paul is writing this letter because he is gravely concerned that the Galatians are going to turn away from the original gospel. You see, Paul is writing against two enemies of the gospel, false teachings of the gospel, okay? And those two will come out throughout this letter. It's legalism, that's one enemy, and then the other enemy of the gospel is license. In the first four chapters, he's going to really focus on legalism and how the gospel is the answer to legalism. Legalism simply says, you need to obey the law of God for God to accept you. You need to do something. You need to be good enough for God to accept you. License, on the other, on the other hand, says, you can use your freedom and forgiveness from Christ to justify sin. You've been forgiven. Live whatever way you want now. These are enemies of the gospel. They turn it upside down and they ruin it. And they destroy people. And he's, he's warning these people. And he, but he, what he's doing is he's digging into the gospel and showing that how grace actually answers both of these questions. So the main point of this text, the first ten verses, is simply this. Don't turn away from the grace and peace that are yours in Jesus Christ. Don't turn away from the grace and the peace that are yours in Jesus Christ. And he basically tells you to do that by making two points. And the two points are going to be the, the two points of this sermon. And the first one is, enjoy the grace and peace that come from the liberating gospel of Jesus Christ. Enjoy the grace and peace that come from the liberating gospel of Jesus Christ. And he's going to make this argument in the verses 3 through 5. So let's read verse 3. Grace and peace to you from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
You see, the first five verses, they're just a standard greeting of any, any ancient letter, you know. However, in a conventional greeting, the, the writer would just say, you know, if you, if you went through and looked at all these kind of ancient letters, they would all start out with a specific word that just says greetings. Like, hey, hope you're doing well. But Paul actually replaces the conventional word here with grace and peace from God. These aren't just throwaway words for Paul. He's, this, he's not just saying, hey, hope you're doing well. We don't mean that, do we? I mean, well, we kind of do, but that's just kind of convention. He's actually dismantling the false teaching, even in the greeting. Grace. In the New Testament, has two sides. you got to understand. If you don't understand grace, you just can't understand the gospel. Grace has two sides. On the one hand, grace is God's free, undeserved favor. One writer said, it's God's free, undeserved favor at his own expense. But on the other side, it's not, it's not just one-dimensional. It's definitely, well, it's multidimensional, but it's definitely two-dimensional. It's also his transforming power. It's really important that you understand both elements of grace. Because understanding both elements of grace undermines both legalism and license. If grace is God's undeserved favor, that means you can't accept to, expect to earn God's favor by doing anything. But at the same time, if God's grace is the power to transform your life, you're not free to live any way you want, right? When God's grace is active in your life, it doesn't leave you unchanged. It can't. Grace is God's power to change your heart and desires so that you begin to hate sin and love what is good. He also tells us to enjoy the peace of God. Peace is what? The the resolution of conflict. It's the reconciliation of enemies. Sin in the Bible failing to reflect God. That's sin, right? Just failing to reflect who he is. Sin makes God our enemy, and then it infects our relationships so that we become enemies with everyone else. Sin leaves us in conflict with God. It leaves us in conflict with one another. And then it even leaves us in conflict in ourselves. There's no peace in us. We're not whole. But Paul tells us to enjoy the grace and peace that come from God the Father and his son Jesus. The question is, how? How do we do this? How do we get this grace and peace? How do we enjoy it? Grace and peace are the result of the gospel message, and that's explained in the next verse, verse 4. Let's just take apart verse 4, because it's really the the summation of his entire letter. Jesus Christ gave himself. See that in verse 4? On the cross, Jesus was giving his life. It wasn't taken from him. He wasn't surprised when the, the Roman soldiers came and got him and Judas betrayed him. He wasn't surprised when the disciples fled from him. He had planned it from the beginning with his father. Oh, it was hard. I mean, he, he was sweating blood. But he knew it was coming because he gave his life. Secondly, Jesus' death was for our sins. See that phrase? 
His death was a punishment for sin. But it wasn't his sin. He had no sin. It was ours. God is determined to punish evil. Okay? That is foundational to who God is. He's determined to punish evil. But instead of punishing us for the evil within us, Jesus takes on our evil, and then God punishes him. Throughout the Bible, God tells us that the, the, the penalty, the judgment for sin is death, and we can receive, and, and because Jesus dies the death we deserved, we can receive forgiveness for our sinful lives, and we don't have to be separated from God. That's ultimately what death is. You know that, right? Death is ultimately separation from God. God is the source of life, John 1, 4. He's the source of life. And to be separated from the source of life is death. Eternal death. Foundationally, the kind of answer, what is death? It's separation from God. Next, we're given the purpose for Jesus' death. He died to rescue us from the present evil age. He died to rescue us from the present evil age. So this is a bit... Don't get scared by this. This is a bit... uh, we, We have to understand what's going on here because we don't usually talk about people rescuing us from an evil age. But you have to understand Jewish thought for a minute. Okay, the Old Testament, how they thought about the whole history of the world. They had this cosmic view of of how the world was going to come to its end. They basically divided the whole history of the world in two stages. This present evil age, where sin reigns and corruption reigns. And so you need the law of Moses... Right? You need the law of Moses to restrain that sin and corruption in the world, okay? But they believed that one day the Messiah was going to come and he was going to come and usher in this glorious new age. This glorious new kingdom where God was going to reign on earth and justice would reign and beauty would reign and truth and honesty and holiness. So it's two ages. And Messiah comes and splits them right down the middle. The significance of Jesus' life and death and resurrection is that he brings the kingdom of God on earth. Jesus' death and resurrection is a signpost saying, the glorious age has come. This puts an end to the law of Moses. And circumcision, which is all connected to that old age. In fact, Christ sends the, when he, when he ascends into heaven, Christ sends the spirit, what spirit? The spirit of the age to come, Titus 2.12. And where does he send that spirit? Where does he send his spirit? The spirit of the age to come enters the hearts of Christians so that his new kingdom can begin in the hearts of those who trust him. So this is the big, sorry, we're getting a bit academic here, just for five minutes, but it's really hard, you can't understand this any other way, I don't think. There's a big plot twist when Jesus comes. This is, this is why the Jewish people that reject him, they are expecting a Messiah that's going to kick the Romans out, set up a big kingdom, 
Jesus is going to be at the throne in the center of Jerusalem, and the Israelites are going to be in the top of the world. And Jesus comes. He's a carpenter. And he's got 12, you know, they're not the highest station of life, his disciples. And he's not, he's not kicking the Romans out of town. In fact, he says, hey, you should still pay taxes to Caesar. But he starts a spiritual kingdom. And that kingdom starts in the hearts of those who put their trust in him, namely the church. The final glorious kingdom of God, where justice and truth and beauty reign, has already begun in the lives of Christians who find themselves in the midst of this old age. That's why Paul will talk as if you're living in the overlap. You see that overlap of ages right in the middle there. The old age is still around us. We live in it. But the church is the inbreaking. The church is the inbreaking of God's kingdom into the old age. You'll often hear us praying that Rotherham Evangelical Church would be an embassy, you know, a, a little a little city of God's kingdom in a lost and dying world. That's because we believe the kingdom has entered, not in its fullness. Obviously, read the news. It's, that justice and beauty and truth hasn't all come about. But what he's saying is it should have started, or it did start, in the lives and hearts of the church. Until one day he's going to return and make that spiritual reality a very much a physical reality on earth. So Jesus' death doesn't only pay, it doesn't only pay the penalty for our sin, it delivers us from the power of sin. And it brings us out of the reign of the evil age and into God's kingdom. But what's the goal of all of this? Verse 5. To whom be glory forever and ever. Your enjoyment of grace and peace, okay, ultimately serve to make God look glorious. Verse 5. God's glory, his beauty, his magnificence, and our enjoyment of his grace and peace are actually the same goal. God gets glory when you take pleasure in his mercy and when you enjoy the peace that he gives you. Your satisfaction in the grace and peace of God even in the midst of a broken world, even in the midst of exams, and, and, and even in the midst of broken relationships and dysfunctional family life, and your anchored satisfaction in him, that brings him glory. Why? Why, why, does, that, why does your satisfaction in his, his grace and peace bring him glory? Because it tells the world that God is more satisfying than good grades, or a happy family, or popularity. It says God's the most satisfying. And that makes him look glorious. So Paul holds out this, this beautiful gospel of grace. And his next point isn't so happy. In verses 6 through 10, he says, this, this is the beautiful gospel. Now don't turn away from the true gospel. Don't turn away from it. Paul gives three very strong reasons for not abandoning the gospel. 
the first reason is from verses 6 and 7. It's simply because there is only one true gospel. Don't abandon it because it's the only true one. Verses 6 and 7, read with me. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. Part of the reason Paul is so shocked is because they've abandoned so quickly, he says. You know, this is the exact same way Moses describes the Israelites in the wilderness in Exodus 32a. Just after God, right, God, in this amazing, miraculous way, saves Israel uh, out of out of slavery in Egypt, in these miraculous wonders, he gives them the law, and then as soon as you can blink, the Israelites have made a golden calf, and they're worshiping it, and they're turning away from God. And he says the exact same thing here. That's what the Galatians are acting like. You see, this Galatian church has relatively young faith. They're, they're a recent church he's, he's, he's planted. You know, I was recently preaching at another church on, on 2 Peter 2, and, and Peter's big warning in, in that chapter is that young, immature Christians are particularly vulnerable to being led away by false teaching. And Peter has even harsher words than Paul for those false teachers. So if young, immature Christians are more susceptible to being swept away by false teaching, what's the remedy? Paul tells us elsewhere that the remedy is to be rooted and grounded in the truth. Friends, that grounding in the truth doesn't happen by magic. It happens in the life of the church. And it's not just the job of the pastors to do that rooting and grounding and discipling. Ask yourself right now, are there any young Christians? Are there any Christians that you are right now in the, in the act of discipling? Who can you personally invest in? Who can you read the Bible with and pray with? Who can you invite into your home and encourage and strengthen their faith? Protect and equip the spiritually vulnerable. Friends, spiritual enemies are, are real. They're as real as physical enemies. I mean, in fact, they're more real. They're more dangerous, Paul thinks. I think this is really, <laughs> I think sometimes we, we don't believe that. I mean, we, we say it maybe. Uh, this is, I'm speaking to myself here. Many of you may have friends, and we have to be very winsome and careful how we do this, right? But we have friends that are rejecting the faith or falling away from the faith, and we kind of think, oh, we'll just let him sort it out. But if they were in real physical danger, you would climb mountains to save them. And I wonder if the reason is we just, we really in our heart don't believe that spiritual enemies are real. Paul tells us they're really and they're so much more dangerous than any kind of physical enemy. Protect the vulnerable. But let me ask you something. What are they actually turning their backs on in verse 6? Because we say they're turning their back on the gospel. And that, that is true. But what does the text say they're, they're actually deserting? 
God himself, the one who called you. Paul wants you to understand that to abandon the good news of Jesus is to abandon God. How are the Galatians abandoning the gospel and God? Ironically, they were abandoning the gospel by adding to it. Faith and repentance was just simply too easy. They thought they needed also to obey the law and be circumcised. You know, the idea of grace is just so radical. It was simply too radical, and it's, it's still radical today. I mean, I talk to people every week, every week down, down in, in Rotherham Town Center, that think it is just madness to believe God would ever accept you on any other reason than the fact that you're a good person and how you perform. People believe that pure grace is just foolishness. And you want to know why? Because at their core, they believe the only way to get good behavior out of people is to threaten them. If you're, if you're saying anybody can get to heaven, I mean, anybody can be accepted by God, and it's not up to, it's not based on what, what they do, then you have, you have no motivation to do what's right. Now, don't get me wrong. The Bible has lots of threats. In fact, the next verse talks about judgment, right? But the Bible teaches that right living is ultimately a result, not of carrot and the stick. It's ultimately the result of a transformed heart. It's your internal makeup. It's your desires that make good living. Judgment occurs in the Bible not so much simply to stop you from doing bad things. It's not the, the sole purpose of judgment. The, judgment occurs in the Bible because it's just the right, just response to evil. This is why grace is so central to the good news of Jesus. Like I said in the beginning, it's, a, it's this double-edged sword. On the one hand, grace is radical because anyone can have access to it. You can't be good enough to earn God's favor. You can't be clever enough to earn God's favor. You can't be rich enough to earn God's favor. You can't be powerful enough to earn God's favor. That's precisely why it's so radical. You can't do anything to earn it. All you can do is embrace it. All you can do. And that's hard to swallow because you might think it's sensible. I think us as Christians, we often, we think it's sensible for God to be gracious to you and you're somewhat understandable sin mistakes you know maybe you're not beating your wife or anything okay and you think okay my sin is it's grace can go so far and it can cover me because that makes sense but all of you can probably identify people that you think should be beyond the access to grace there's a part of us that wants to leave just a little room for yeah but i deserve it more than that guy On the other hand, grace isn't merely undeserved favor. It's also transforming power. Some behaviors you can, you can modify by threats for a short while. But God is doing something far greater and deeper than simple behavior modification. He's in the business of changing desires. He's in the business of changing who you are at the core. When the Bible gives a picture 
of what God expects us to be like, he says things like this. You've got to give to the poor, but you can't just give to the poor. I love a cheerful giver. You realize how radical that is? You've got to be the person, the, the kind of person, who doesn't only give your resources away to the poor, but you love doing it. This kind of change does not happen by merely threatening people. It happens only when there's a supernatural power to transform who you are at the desire level. That's what grace is. If you turn away from grace, Paul says, you don't really have a different gospel. You have no gospel. The second reason not to turn away, this is all under the second point here, is because those who turn away from the true gospel, they stand under God's judgment. Verses 8 and 9. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Verse 8 and verse 9 make the same point. If you reject the one true gospel, if you reject grace, then you'll be outside of grace. And you won't receive forgiveness for your sins. And you'll stand under God's judgment alone. Without an advocate. Friends, that is the worst place you can possibly be. Adding additional requirements to the gospel is not a trivial matter. It literally overturns the entire gospel itself. It makes the gospel of grace not gracious. These false teachers are under God's final judgment, and anyone who follows them will meet the same end. And Paul isn't simply trying to advance his own personal agenda. Notice, he even includes the possibility of himself in this judgment. Even if we, that means I, Paul, if I come back to you later and I'm preaching a different gospel, I'll be subject to the same judgment. The truthfulness of this gospel isn't ultimately dependent on Paul's authority or any human authority. The gospel message is true and authoritative because it's ultimately been given from God. And it's only of second, it is important, but it's only of secondary importance that Paul's actually an apostle. You know, there, there are still many false gospels today. Let me give you a few. There's, there's so many. One is, God's okay with me. I, I, I hear almost every one of these every week. God's okay with me because I was baptized in a church and I seldomly go to that church. I kind of identify with that Christianity. As if God's grace can become, in, is operated towards someone because they've done a few rituals or they show up at a church. Obviously, you know how, how important I think baptism and, and the church life is. But if you put those if you make those the cause of your of, of why God accepts you, you've missed the whole thing. 
And you've made, you've made this small means of grace into actually a means of judgment. Oh, I mean, how, how tragic is that? Another one. I know the gospel and I think it's true. I know the gospel and I think it's true. Maybe this is the gospel of intellectual assent. Listen, friends. James tells us that Satan knows the gospel and thinks it's probably true. And he hates it. Knowing facts about the gospel and thinking that's probably the way it is is not faith. Love what Sarah was doing some studies recently and she shared this definition from John Frame. Faith is knowledge plus trust. Like a child who can't swim and embraces their parents' arms in the water. That's faith. Not just knowing, oh, I know that person is safe. It's embracing them. Because it's your only hope. Another false gospel. It's not only religious people who have false gospels, the secular world does as well. The, the good news of secular society is this. Be the best you can be. Be true to yourself. But don't worry too much if you don't. Because at the end of the, end of the day, there's no judgment regardless of how you live. That's good news for them, isn't it? Listen, be true to yourself, be good. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter at all how you really live. Because it's coming to nothing. No judgment. Get serious. That's their version of the good news. Listen, everybody has a gospel, okay? The, the question is, which one is true? The main takeaway here, though, is that, is that the gospel provides the exclusive, the only path to God's salvation. On a weekly basis, I talk to all kinds of people about their religious views, and, uh, and, you know, I find that people are, are quite happy to tolerate my religious views. As far as they're concerned, they're quite happy for me to believe in God or Jesus or Muhammad. Heck, they're happy for me to believe in fairies if I want to. But the moment you make an exclusive claim to the truth, Jesus and the death he provides is the only path to God. You are immediately met with resistance, even resentment. To say that Jesus and the gospel is the only way to salvation and wholeness is viewed by the larger culture as just the essence of arrogance and intolerance. And I actually can grant them the fact that you know, exclusive claims in religion have actually brought some arrogant people and conflict into the world. But I want to say a few things about this issue of exclusivism of, of Jesus. Because there's an assumption behind the claim, and again, it's a claim I get every week. I mean, every week, three out of four people. You can believe in Jesus, but please don't say it's the only way. That's ridiculous. 
you know, that claim that, that all paths, their, their claim behind that is, right, is that all paths, all religions must lead to God in, in some impartial way. It assumes the vantage point of understanding and properly evaluating all religions. Let me explain. Have you ever heard of the analogy of, you, you probably have, it's, it's overused, but it's helpful, of the blind men feeling an elephant, right? They're, they're blind, so obviously they can't see the elephant. So one, one man, blind man, grabs the, the, um, what am I thinking of here? The trunk, sorry, that just evaded me for a second. I was going to say the nose. Do elephants have noses? What? Trunk, the trunk. And, and he says, oh, the elephant is, is, uh, long and flexible. You know, another, another blind man grabs the leg and says, it's a sturdy, an elephant is a sturdy pillar. And then another one grabs the ear and says, no, no, it's kind of like a flimsy fan. Right? The moral of the story as it relates to religion is that all religions have some partial truth, but they don't grasp the full truth. This is a good explanation, what they'll give often. Now, I want you to notice something. That's a great illustration, but it assumes that the you as the reader can see the whole elephant. The illustration only works if you are on the outside and you have a perfect view of the truth. And then you can rightly judge what the blind men only partially see, right? The person who says no religion can claim to have the whole truth actually makes a profoundly confident claim to have have the truth. They claim to perfectly understand all religions and the spiritual reality so well that they can claim all religions that say there's a single way are actually wrong. Friends, that is an exclusive claim. It's a claim that I'm right and all religious people are wrong, even Jesus. What's the point behind that? It's not to say that they're wrong. I simply want you to understand that everyone makes an exclusive claim. The secular, the Christian, everyone makes exclusive claims to some kind of truth. You simply can't avoid it. The question is this. What exclusive claim leads you to not be arrogant? Which exclusive claim leads you to not feel superior to those outside of your faith? What kind of exclusivism will actually humble you and drive you to be inclusive of all kinds of people? Friends, it's grace. The gospel is an exclusive claim that dismantles superiority and arrogance because you can't be good enough or clever enough to get it. The gospel is the exclusive claim that dismantles superiority and grace. You have to be broken to accept the gospel. You have to be humble to accept the gospel. You simply have to embrace Jesus and the salvation he offers. If the good news of Jesus Christ 
that he died in your place so that you can have God's favor. If that doesn't humble you, I promise you, you don't believe it. If Christianity makes you feel superior to others, and let's be honest, expressions of Christianity has done that to some people, I promise you, you don't believe the message that Jesus preached. You haven't really grasped grace. Well, there's one last reason that he doesn't want you to fall away, turn away from Christ and the gospel. And it'll be quick here. It's because in verse 10, my aim is, Paul's aim is not to please man, but to be faithful to God. Verse 10, am I not trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. You know, some of these false teachers may have suggested that Paul was the one who altered the gospel, weren't they? They probably suggested that Paul wanted to make the gospel a bit more attractive, a bit easier to accept, a little less offensive to the Gentiles who, you know, weren't circumcised from birth. You can imagine what they were thinking, right? In walks Paul. They, they believe that circumcision is a requirement to becoming a Christian. You know, telling a bunch of uncircumcised people that they need to go through surgery in order to become Christians, well, Paul just wanted to shy away from that. That's what they're saying. But Paul says his motivation is entirely aimed at pleasing God and not pleasing their itching ears. In fact, Paul left Judaism in which he was a rising star. This gospel message in some way ruined Paul's career. It brought him death threats. It brought him persecution. If his motivation was anything other than pleasing God, it just wouldn't make sense. So what does Paul want us to get from this opening, the opening of this letter? Simply, don't turn away from the gospel of Jesus. Don't add to it. Don't alter it. It's your only hope for forgiveness and grace. Paul is so animated in this, in this first part of the letter because he knows if you believe that grace is just too radical a concept to believe in, you'll be outside of grace. And if you're outside of grace, friend, you, with all your sin, will stand before God and his judgment, and you'll be alone. You won't have an advocate Because you'll have rejected the only one who can stand in your place, Jesus. Friends, don't reject Jesus. Don't reject his grace. Embrace him. Put your faith in him. Submit to him. Just put your entire hope in that Jesus. Let's pray.